This week's episode is brought to you by Honeywell. Honeywell is a Fortune 100 technology company with operations in more than 75 countries. Building owners and operators in the education sector, use Honeywell's hardware, software, and analytics to help create safe, efficient, and productive facilities. Honeywell's solutions and services are used in more than 10 million buildings, including schools, worldwide. Visit www.honeywell.com to learn how Honeywell partners with schools and higher ed institutions to improve safety, security, and sustainability on campus. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor at Ed Surge. A few months back, we dove into the world of prestigious scholarships. Looking at the controversial history of what's probably the most famous of these, the Rhodes Scholarship. And I learned that there's this whole ecosystem of selective scholarships that send U.S. students to various countries. And many colleges have set up offices devoted to helping students win these, since they bring so much prestige to the institutions as well. That episode focused on which students get to win these educational opportunities, and whether these competitions are equitable. But since then, I learned about another interesting question regarding these programs. Basically, who sets them up? And who gets to decide what opportunities will be out there? And which countries students get the chance to study in for free? If the big idea here is that these super talented students who win these scholarships will be forever changed and become future leaders of our country, then this question of where they end up getting to go is worth a serious look. The story of one highly selective scholarship in particular brings this issue into focus. Because it shows that even a successful and prestigious scholarship program can have trouble staying afloat. The program we're zooming in on is the Mitchell Scholarship, which every year sends 12 undergrads to study at universities in Ireland. The program is more selective than Harvard, and some years it's even harder to win than the Rhodes. But the founder and longtime leader of this scholarship program, Trina Vargo, is nearing retirement age. And she's worried about whether the scholarship's bank account is big enough for the effort to continue. We lack the endowment that the others have, and we're either going to have to raise that endowment pretty quickly so it can go on after me, or I will unfortunately be the person who will also shut it down like I started it. The Mitchell Scholarship is about to select its 24th class. The Mitchell Scholarship is about to select its 24th class of winners and it has supported more than 250 students over the years, some of whom have gone on to hold elected office or other influential positions. Each year, more than 300 people vie for these 12 slots, filling out extensive applications and securing the endorsement of their colleges. And that's the way it works for the Rhodes and other scholarships as well. Most of these highly selective scholarships have one crucial fact in common. They were founded by billionaires, As a first-generation college student raised by middle-class parents in Pittsburgh, Vargo's story stands apart. And she says that may keep the scholarship from continuing. So I connected with Trina Vargo recently to find out more about the story of this famous scholarship program at a crossroads. I started by asking, how did she get the idea to create the Mitchell Scholarship? Uh, abbreviated history is that I used to be Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy's foreign policy advisor a gazillion years ago, and I was heavily involved in the Northern Ireland peace process. 
And that was around 1998 that Senator Mitchell was the negotiator of the what ended up being the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland. And so when I was leaving Senator Kennedy's office, and I'll explain to you why I was leaving to start this, I, I needed to name the scholarship. I had the idea for the scholarship and wanted to name it after somebody. And Senator Mitchell had just had this massive achievement with the Good Friday Agreement. So I just asked him, do you mind if I put your name on the scholarship that I'm creating? But even to go back a step before that, uh, when I was working with Senator Kennedy and regularly you would have Irish prime ministers called Tishi coming into the office meeting and groups of people would leave. And Kennedy always used to say to me, you know, the Irish never get their act together like Jewish Americans do and Greek Americans do. And what are they going to do when we're not around anymore? And he was referring to how some groups connected to some ethnic ethnicity, right, were very good at lobbying Capitol Hill and um, just having a big organization to, to back it all up. And he realized that, and I realized watching all of this, that w- when there was an issue that came up with Ireland, the Irish ambassador or the prime minister would call Ted Kennedy or they'd call Pat Moynihan. And there was a generation of people who were very connected to Ireland and they were fading away. They were leaving the scene. They were retiring. Most of them have now since died. Um, there's only a few left, really. The only ones who were still around who were connected to the Northern Ireland peace process would have been Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi. Um, Senator Leahy just retired. So that generation is fading. And, and I thought about what Kennedy said because I had witnessed it. And I thought, well, okay, I'm just going to leave. You know, we've got the Good Friday Agreement. I'm not, my job on Capitol Hill is not going to be any better than having it, you know, worked on that. And so I'm going to go see if this can happen, if, you know. And it's still, even, even though it's been happening for 25 years, it's a question mark to me. Um, demographics are changing in the U.S. There aren't nearly as many as Irish Americans. There are, in fact, if you look at the census every year, it declines. If you look at the number of people coming from Ireland to the U.S., that's declined significantly since the 80s because Ireland was a poor country and it's not anymore. So there are all these demographic reasons that um, it's a question mark as to whether or not, you know, the connection will remain in future generations. But I thought that the scholarship was a way, a piece of making that kind of a connection. Okay, so the scholarship was how to... um kind of create knowledge, awareness of a new generation in the United States of Ireland. Yes, the idea was always to, how do we introduce future American leaders to the island of Ireland, um, north and south? And from day one, we also said, you don't only have to be an Irish American to win this. It's just as important to me that Latino Americans and Asian Americans and every sort of American, um, I feel like if you get people to Ireland once, they fall in love with the place. So I don't really care what your ancestry is. Um, how, do we, how, how do we do that? And I had, been, I had actually been the recipient of a Rotary scholarship and studied, did my graduate work at McGill in Montreal. And so I knew the value. I know what an impact it had on my life. And so again, I, al- I also thought, you know, why are all of our best and brightest only going to the UK, which they heavily were. Um, there was no prestigious American scholarship for postgraduates that was uniquely sending people to the island of Ireland. So the idea was that you could apply. I w- went to every university president on the island and asked them, you know, would you take, you know, X number of Mitchell scholars a year? We were going to send 12 every year. 
the first amount of money I got were from the, the, the then Prime Minister of Ireland, Bertie Ahern. I just explained the idea to me, to him, and it was fantastic because he, he got it in five seconds and he said, we're in. And then I went to Mo Molum, who was then the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland for the British government, and she involved them right away. So it got off to a very fast start. Um, and I think, you know, they just saw, they knew, people understand the way demographics and things are changing. And I think they just realized we do need future American leaders to be introduced to, to this island. So this is a good way to do it. So it seems like you're modeling this at the time on things like the Rhodes Scholarship, which, and people know the Rhodes Scholarship is probably the most famous. And that one sends, you know, you know U.S. students to Oxford University in England. And they study there and then they come back and obviously that's a very selective thing. And so the idea is they come back and become leaders in America and they have this awareness of the broader, um, the the broader European and and English context. So basically that's your model, except for insert an Ireland university, Irish university. Yes, you could, yeah, you can go to any, um, technically institution of higher learning on the island sort of thing. So it ends up really being, you know, about nine universities, I guess, on the island that you can go to. And you can study anything as well. When Trina Vargo set out to create the scholarship in 1998, she says she didn't worry too much about the money it would take to really make it work long term. I was probably in my early 30s, I guess. And the one thing I just hadn't considered was if I had looked at all the other scholarships, and actually some of the scholarships have come on since, but if I had looked at that moment in time, I would have realized that Every major scholarship that we now, you know, quote unquote, compete with, I don't think any of them really compete there. You know, there's plenty of brilliant young people that we can all have in our programs. But if you, every single one of them were, was created by a wealthy founder who wanted to put their name on a scholarship. So think Rhodes, Bill Gates, Stephen Schwartzman, Knight Hennessy. Uh, now there's a new one. Now he didn't put his name on it, but now there's a new Quad Scholars, which is Eric Schmidt of Google. Every single major scholarship has massive amounts of money in comparison to what we have. And it was because the founder had the money. I am first-generation college student. I have absolutely zero money. And I kind of felt, I didn't think about it, but I also would have kind of felt like, you know, if you just prove yourself, if you build it, they will come kind of an attitude. But we still, we lack the endowment that the others have. And we're either going to have to raise that endowment pretty quickly so it can go on after me, or I will unfortunately be the person who will also shut it down like I started it. Wow. So it's so interesting because one of the things that we explored in our bootstrap series was the history of the Rhodes Scholarship. And there are, you know, um, as you mentioned, it was a Cecil Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, like a benefactor, very wealthy from, you know, diamonds and mining in, in, in South Africa. And I, um, you know, there's a lot of, one thing we uncovered is that some students are kind of, there's some questions about the origin of that and what it, the, the legacy, because, you know, there are some things now that we see he, he were problematic about his own life and behavior and also, um, you know, all kinds of reasons. But in in your case, um, the the story is the first generation college student creates it, it really on a shoestring. Like yes, with, totally with yes. kind of moxie more than money. Yes. Absolutely. And 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 probably naivete more than anything else. And so I do hope, I mean, you know, I keep hoping that someone, whether it's 
you know, it could be governments, it could be corporations, so many American multinationals are in Ireland, or just a wealthy individual that says, you know what, this is a good idea. I care about the future of this relationship. I'm going to lock it down. And they can even add their name to it if they want. I mean, Senator Mitchell would be the first to tell you, absolutely. Um, So as legacies go, it would be much less expensive than the other ones that exist. I mean, I think the Schwartzman, if I'm not mistaken, might be up to nearly a billion dollars in that endowment. Um, Let's say what the Schwartzman scholarship is. I know I, we both know it. You're in this world, so there. That's one of the newer prestigious exactly. scholarships. So when is you the go, yes. Yeah, so when you go through them, obviously, as you mentioned, you have the Rhodes that is for Oxford. Then now government funded, you have the Marshall, which sends people to universities um, all over the United Kingdom. Rarely Northern Ireland, but technically they could. Um, you also have the Gates, which is Bill Gates, and that's to Cambridge. Then Stephen Schwartzman. Um, created a scholarship because he's a businessman interested in China that sends postgraduates, not only Americans, but more than Americans, um, to China for study. Then uh, along also came the Knight Hennessy, which was created by Phil Knight from uh, Nike. Nike. Nike, right? And I think Hennessy's name is he also added the name of the then president of Stanford. So you can get American postgraduates to go to the best programs in Stanford. Um, and then, like I said, there's this new one from Eric Schmidt of Google, which is called the Quad. And I think, you know, the, the, the countries that are involved in that are the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. Um, so, so, but they all, like I said, they all have, now obviously everyone's endowment value fluctuates with the market. And I don't even want to look at the value of the small endowment we have right now because of the fluctuations of the market. But when you start, when you have that big endowment to start with, you don't have to constantly be concerned about the way the market goes, right? So we started with a little bit of money and then the tech crash hits us in 2001. Then it takes like seven or eight years to build it back up. Then we had the crash of 2008 and then you build it back up and then you get COVID and now a reception and a recession and it will go back down. So it's this constant you know, holding your breath through the cycles of the global economy, which when you have the hundreds of millions, you can more easily ride that out and not sweat it out. So you have a, such a, 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 could you give us a, sco- a sense of the rough scope of the endowment you do have? Yeah, right now, moment? now, like I said, I haven't looked at the markets recently, right? But it should be in the range of about 8 million. The objective is, at a minimum, this endowment should be 40 million. And that's not even building in, you know, a large, a much larger number of staff than we should have. It's me and one other person. Um, so the, the, the objective is 40 million. I should say the Irish government passed legislation, quite historic legislation that they, that they never passed before, that said that they would match anything we raise up to 20 million. So I basically would pitch a major donor, if you give 21 million, you'll have given the most and it'll be matched, 20 million of it, and we can add your name to the scholarship as well. So 21 million is a lot less expensive than like every other new one I see starting starts at at least a hundred million. I wish we had a hundred million. We could certainly spend it and I would know how I could spend a hundred million quite easily. But that would be the minimum where we would feel like we can build that, you know, the next generation leadership and capacity. I, this is all in my head, right, of my own experience. So you have to have a proper succession, but you can't spend too much time thinking about succession if you don't have the money to actually pass it on to the next generation. Right. So as you come up on, you know, 
25 years, but you're, you personally are clearly like such a key force in this and you are not going to do it forever because you just can't. It's a point. Yeah, no, no, yeah. We, we all die in the end. Yes. There's no escaping it. There's no escaping it. Um, is that on your mind these days then? Well, well, hopefully not dying is not on my mind right now, but of course, retiring. We, we, yeah. Rather. We never know. We never know. Um, Look, I'm not getting any younger. I turned 60 last year. That's not a big, a big secret. And I feel absolutely fine. And I love doing what I'm doing. And I, you know, I will, I will do it until, you know, I can't anymore, literally. But like I said, there's a, there's sort of a, a runway to bring other people on board and have them understand how to take it over. After the break, why are these scholarships, which serve just a few students every year, worth the cost? Are they still a fit for today's educational landscape? Stay with us. Honeywell Building Technologies is transforming the way every building operates to help improve the quality of life. School districts and higher ed campuses use Honeywell's hardware, software, and analytics to help create safe, efficient, and productive campuses. Schools today require a dynamic approach to managing the learning experience. And Honeywell can help ensure yours makes the grade. Did you know that the federal government has allocated billions of dollars to state and local government entities for building improvements? Funding is available for solutions such as safety and security, sustainability and energy management, cybersecurity, and more. Honeywell's team of funding experts can help identify funding opportunities that may be available to you to meet your school's needs. Visit www.honeywell.com to learn more about how Honeywell partners with schools to create energy-efficient, innovative, secure, and resilient campuses. Now back to the episode. All of these scholarships we're talking about, the Mitchell and the Rhodes and all these prestigious scholarships, they serve just a small number of students every year. Which does raise the question, is this the best way to spend huge amounts of money endowing them? Trina Vargo says that her program does try to help all the applicants, even the ones who don't win by connecting them to universities in Ireland that may want them to come anyway, or companies in Ireland that might want to hire them. But she says the promise of these efforts is that the alumni of the scholarship programs will go on to make an outsized impact based on what they've learned studying abroad. Right now we have somebody in the, we're a young program, right? We're less than 25 years old. We have a member of the State House of Massachusetts who was in our first class of Mitchell Scholars. We have a member of the State House in, uh, in California who was a Mitchell Scholar and in all kinds of fields and areas. And when you have these people out there, um, that impacts the relationship. These people have studied on the island. They know Ireland. They're not ignorant about the place. They can maybe make decisions that help benefit the relationship. Um, I always knew in creating this that I, w- I would not see the true value of it in my lifetime. I'm sure Cecil Rhodes did not see, you know, he had this, he had this imagery of what could happen, but he wouldn't have seen Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, became the president. You know, that doesn't happen in your lifetime. So basically what you need is that bridge to get to, you know, Ted Kennedy used to talk about it all the time. He would do many things, but he knew he wouldn't see the value of it in his lifetime. But you just have to sort of push it out there to get to the, someday someone else will see the value of it. Did you ever think of putting your name on the scholarship? <laughs> Never. Um, it's, it's funny now when I look back, because I have to honestly recognize that I think that's very much a female sort of thing. I think we, you know, every other scholarship's name that is on a major scholarship is a man. 
and it's white man. So I would love, you know, if Rihanna is listening, I think she has some Irish American heritage. If, you know, um, Gates or Bezos, uh, they have, those women have large foundations on their own right now, no longer Bezos. Um, uh, you know, I would love to see a woman's name on a major scholarship. It needn't be mine. If some woman wants to, you know, have that money for that endowment, I'd be very delighted to put her name on it. And, but, but your own name, it never occurred to you. Never, but. never. I mean, when I, when I, when, you know, when you're starting this thing out and, 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 and I realized like you have to put somebody's name on it who I made an assumption, somebody whose name would be recognizable and would carry a certain amount of, you know, gravitas with it. And Senator Mitchell just done the Good Friday Agreement. Everybody knew who he was. I would have, and I hadn't even thought about it. If I would have thought about it, I probably would have felt that it would have been a bit arrogant to think, well, I'll just put my, we'll call it after me. I just don't have that bone in me. <laughs> and you were, as you put it, you know, not somebody who's, who's famous. Right, at right, all right. At the time. I, yeah, I was just somebody that had this idea. I'd seen everything I'd seen by working for Ted Kennedy. So I knew what needed to be done and I knew that I could execute it. But I just, and I had to name it after something to start it. Um, and like I said, I, Senator Mitchell had just done the Good Friday Agreement, and I said to him, look, would you mind if I put your name on it? It was that simple. People always think there's much more to it. Um, but, but it was that simple. And, and yeah, I, I would have never thought to put my own name on it. But you, it's interesting. You said that you feel like you would be willing to change the name of the Mitchell Scholarship to a donor if it, a donor had the right idea to, or the, the, the amount of money to really give it the backing that you think would give it the durability. Yeah, if I had $21 million and I wanted my name on it, it could become the Vargo Mitchell Scholarship, right? So th- that's, that's easily done. So I'm interested in um, this question of, you know, it sounds like you've clearly shopped this around, so to speak. You have, you have gotten donors, obviously, over the years. But why do you think a major donor hasn't bitten on the Mitchell compared to, you know, when it, you know, when it seems like it's gotten a good reputation by now, obviously. I know it's, it's, I think part of it is there's just a lack of awareness. I, I, on one hand, I do feel like that donor is out there. They just don't know about the Mitchell. They don't know this exists or that we're looking for them. Right. So it's a needle in the haystack. Right. And do you find that needle before it's too late? That's a huge part of it. That's one part of it. Um, the other piece of it is always, you know, there's a lot of talk about the U.S.-Ireland relationship, but if it is sincere, if it is real, then where where is the money for the future maintenance of this relationship? One of the things I always look at is um, I think about APAC, which you know the uh, the American Israeli um, PAC and Public Affairs Committee, I think it's called, and there are only I think this is fairly up to date. I think there are six million American Jews. APAC operates on a budget of $60 million a year, the last time I looked, 6 million Jews. There are probably 31 million Irish Americans, and I haven't raised that money, that amount of money in 25 years. So that's what, now, I do recognize if you are a Jewish American, you may, you probably have a well-found concern about the very future of the state of Israel, which is a compelling factor to get people to give. But still, proportionately, that's a huge amount of money for a small population. So you would think that with 31 million Irish Americans, if there was sufficient interest in the future of this relationship, it should be easy to raise this kind of money. But it does, it takes me back to my original question, which is, 
you know, is there sufficient interest? And, and sufficient interest is really only demonstrated by sufficient resources. Anybody can talk a good game and say, oh, the relationship is great. And there's a lot of that happy talk. But, you know, you know, it's like, show me the money. That's where it is in the end of the day. So, you know, is it out there? Probably. Will we find it in time? I think, too, the, the other attitude I have about the scholarship is I think you have to be very zen about it, right? Which is to say, wow, I would very much love to see this go on. I see who it values, how it values the relationship, the individuals. I would love to see it go on. I also have to step back and, and, and recognize that for all, <laughs> this is going to be a little too, too much for some people, but, uh, but I sincerely mean this, for all, for all I know, the very reason this scholarship exists may have already been achieved. So there, are, and what I mean by that is there's several Mitchell scholars who, for example, met their spouse because of their time in Ireland. There are now children that exist because of the Mitchell scholarship. What if that one of those children cures cancer? I'll be dead. We won't real. I won't realize it at the time. But it would be like light bulb. Ah, that's why the Mitchell Scholarship existed. So I see the value, like with the roads and the gates. Like you want to see these things go on forever because these the young people that we choose are truly going out there and 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 having a big impact and doing good things and important things and worthy things and not just money-making things. I always joke with the alums, you all do good. I wish somebody would do well so we could be funded. Um, but, you know, maybe it's been achieved. I don't know. Can't tell. We'll know if we get a donor or not. <laughs> so I am very curious. Are you Irish? What's your connection to Ireland? Yes, I, I am Irish-American, but um, my ancestors came over so long ago. It was well before the famine. So we would not, I would have not have come from a family where anybody was singing Danny Boy in the house, right? Um, so there was none of that connection. It really um, grew when I went to work for Senator Kennedy, and I was basically told, I was a foreign policy advisor, okay, you're doing Ireland now. It was just given to me and handed to me, so suddenly I had to learn all about Ireland. And it came from, you know, you spend all those years working on those issues, and you meet really fabulous people. And You know, Ireland is, a, is, 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 is an incredibly interesting place. And Mitchell scholars who go over there never come back and say, I'm sorry I ever did that. They meet lifelong friends. They have incredible experiences. You know, and that was my feeling about the country. So I just thought, you know, who, who wouldn't want to come here, you know, and have this opportunity? The, obviously, it's interesting that Mitchell, you know, you mentioned that he was a household name at the time of the founding of the scholarship 24 years ago. And the issue of uh, of Ireland was on in you know, headlines every, all over the United States um, as as a because it was a such a hotspot, dramatic, you know. And now it's not as much, a little bit, but not as much. Right. So I guess I wonder if um, if that is a factor in um, in, in as you you know it, it, are you you know kind of facing a fact that Ireland isn't in the news these yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. Much. And I mean, and and the the funny thing is. That's a good thing because, you know, now it's in, it's in the news to the extent that Brexit is still, you know, a problem and there are issues that have to be worked out, definitely. So I would never say, oh, everything's fine from the peace process. It's all done and dusted. There's a bit. But it is not the kind of situation where back in when I worked for Ted Kennedy and Bill Clinton was the president and everything was going on, people were, it was, you know, it could be page one. When, when we got Jerry Adams that visa to come to the United States in 1994, that was a page one story in the New York Times. Because it all was so successful, 
that means Ireland gets less attention. Um, you know, nobody is going to give money in the same sort of way that they would give money for, for because of a fear about what Israel faces. So that doesn't exist, but I would say, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I'm trying to think of a way to, to phrase this, but I guess how do you... Um, how, how, what do you see the future of all of these selective scholarships? There, one of the things we we talked about in our um, bootstrap series was just kind of this. You know, are they what people want right now? Is there is there a sense of like that these opportunities are so hard to get that they kind of have their own elitism in a way, and that um, you know, are are you are you worried that people may there may be less demand for for these opportunities as people are um, may may see them as something that's kind of yeah elitist or um, not 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 kind of in the zeitgeist at the moment. No, I think that um, because there are so many more of them, that's a plus, right? As 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 a as an overall number, there's a lot more opportunities now for people. Um, to go to a lot more places. So that in and of itself, just mathematically, makes all of it less elite, right? Because there are just more of them. Um, we, we don't re- It's funny, there, we, had a few, we had fewer applicants this year. And one of the things that's really interesting to follow is what is going on in the world. Sometimes, you know, if the economy's bad, I'll think we'll get more applicants because it's not a good economy to get a job in. Or you wonder, like when COVID happens, what is the impact of COVID on people didn't want to go abroad that year. And yet the weird thing is one of our highest years for applicants, I think was, was like two years ago. So maybe somebody said to me, students are all at home and they have time. So more of them are filling out these applications. Now this year, um, there were fewer, and you, until I see how many people applied for all the rest, it's a little hard to have a, a good sense of things. But I did see academic advisors on these sort of listservs that we can follow, talking to each other, talking about, you know, there is this sort of, you know, the psychology from COVID has meant they have felt it's harder to get that applicant to finish that essay, press that button, actually make the application in the end of the day. So it would be fa- I don't know how you would know if this is a factor. But when I read that, I realized, well, that might explain why we have fewer this year than last year. And I will be interested to see if the Rhodes and the Marshall and everybody else has fewer and if COVID is the explanation. Because usually, and I never understand how the math of this works, but nearly since the beginning of our time, we've always had a, just about 300 to 350 and applicants. And proportionately, given that we give 12, it's interesting that I think the Rhodes was always in the neighborhood of 900 applicants. Well, they give 32. So proportionate of scholarships to, you know, opportunity, you know, applications to opportunities, um, they're all kind of similar, uh, you know, in some ways. I think, you know, the Marshall, you probably have a little bit better of a chance of getting a Marshall given how many there are and how many people apply. But I also, you know, I feel really strongly that and again, maybe it goes back to my own experience having studied even in Montreal, which, you know, people would think, well, Canada is not that different. And I'm sure that people think Ireland is not that different. But all these cultures are very different. Sometimes it's subtle when they speak English and you think we're a lot alike, but then you're living in these places and you realize we're not that much alike. And I think it's a, it's a very, you know, Americans by and large do not 
travel to the extent, you know, an Irish young person would have traveled, you know, a lot of the world in comparison to the average American student. And if we're going to lead, if we want to lead this world in any real way when it comes to things like climate change and everything that's going on, we have to have more leaders who understand the world and have had an experience outside their own country to really take into consideration all we have to be able to do to collaborate with the rest of the world to, to, to hopefully pass just, never mind passing the scholarship on to the next generation, we need to pass the world on to the next generation. I'm curious about your own story. You mentioned you're a first-generation college student. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and I went to the University of Pittsburgh, and I went actually to one of the sort of, I forget what you call it, like the satellite campuses, because I, 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 I coached basketball. I was a big basketball player, and believe it or not, because if you saw me, you would think you, because I'm, I'm, I'm not that tall. And um, I, I had to make a choice when I went to college. I had, uh, I had a few college scholarship you know, people were um, um, approaching me to play college ball, um, but they were at colleges I had no interest and intention of going to. And I also realized to sort of keep up that level of um, athletic performance, it would have to take up my whole college experience. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to be in the, there was, I mean, there probably wasn't a WNBA, let alone would I be in it. So I thought I better get serious about academics. So I, I did, I love sports. I've always loved sports. So I coached basketball while I went to the University of Pittsburgh. And then I won the, the, it was a person on my campus at the University of Pittsburgh who said, you know, you should apply for the Rotary. And I had been to Montreal as part of my college French class, and I loved the place. And so that's how I ended up going there for a year. Wow. And you would say that was a, basically a huge formative yes, experience that set your huge. life, your career in, in motion. Huge. And, and that's why I think they're so important for students, you know, every level. There's a, a many Fulbrights, right? You can get the Fulbrights to lots of countries in this world. You know, every college opportunity like that to get people abroad. And there's a lot of universities that have their own study abroad programs. I know you can go to Ireland in your junior year for a term, that sort of thing. You know, the, and even, you know, it pays dividends. And I think I've read before about corporations, a lot of the ways that people move up the ranks on some corporations it, with some corporations. Sorry, let me try that again. The way that people often move up a corporation's ladder is by having had some international experience for those corporations. So the more we get outside our own heads and, 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 and visit another place, I think the better for the country. Last question. How hopeful are you at this point that you can kind of set, set this next chapter in motion to continue the Mitchell? You know what? It is a flip of a coin in my view, to be honest, only because there is this part of me that feels like, you know, it is this successful, it's proven itself. So if anybody wants to invest in it and give to it, they're not taking a chance on something that may or may not work. It's already doing it. So that part of me is always hopeful. But then there is the part of me that says, you know, we've been looking for 25 years. And if you haven't found that person, and like I said, because you see the history of all the ones that have existed, I only keep saying that I hope I'll get somebody like Warren Buffett in the sense that Warren Buffett could have started his own whatever he wants to start. But he saw what Bill Gates was doing with philanthropy, and he said, I'm just going to give my money to the Gates Foundation. He didn't, it's, it's almost like, you know, he didn't have enough of an ego in, in the best possible way that he had to create his own thing. And, and I've encountered that a couple of times with people who have not wanted to give money because it wasn't their idea. Um, 
And if you're that person, they're probably not going to give me money and, and, it, and it won't go on. But you do hope for that person who is maybe, it's almost like you have to have a certain level of security. You have to be confident about yourself. You have to know and be happy with what you've already achieved, that you have that level of money, right? And that you can say, you know, this would be my legacy. I want to help this thing go on. Probably somebody who cares about the U.S.-Ireland relationship. Maybe they're Irish-American, maybe they're Irish. But it could be anybody who just cares about, like I said, giving American students an opportunity to study abroad. Have you tried Warren Buffett yet? Uh, I actually did, and I got nowhere. I did try Warren Buffett. You, like, you name them, I've probably tried them, uh, including I've written to a co- <laughs> I've written to like the Yales and Stanford of the world looking for just a piece of their endowments. <laughs> yeah, because um, there are quite a few Americans who would qualify as having enough money that this would not be that big a deal to them. No, exactly. I mean, for for a certain cadre of people, and I confess, they're not the cadre of people that I hang out with every day, right? It's, it's its own little world. And within that world, the money is definitely there. It's, it's about whether, you know, this gets through to them. Hopefully your podcast will reach somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, yeah, if you're, if, you're, if you're listening out there and you end up connecting, definitely let us know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll, we'll put it out there. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing the story. I really appreciate it. Well, it's nice to talk to you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one that explore big questions and how education is changing. Now, we aren't asking for any million-dollar donation here at Ed Surge, but please do help us spread the word about the podcast by telling a friend about it or sharing on social media. And please follow the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen or sign up for our podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. Click on the word newsletter at the top right. We'd love to hear ideas you have for what we could explore. Send any suggestions or feedback to me at jeff at edsurge.com or you can dial our call-in line and leave a voicemail. That number is 202-990-8525. 202-990-8525. We might include your response in a future episode. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young. I'm on Twitter, at JR Young. Twitter stills around. We had editing help this episode by Marissa Kaplan. And music by Komaku. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.